Good morning. Good morning, sir. How are you? I'm doing well. How are you? I'm doing well. This is um, the riffing episode. The riffing episode. Yeah, it's been a little bit lighter week because I've just been deep in the uh, deep in the builder cave, uh, working on meeting poles and just trying to like push as hard as I can on that, which doesn't produce a lot of great radio. <laughs> Fair enough. Yep. Well, let's see if we can we can force it. Cool. Are you drinking coffee right now? I just had a cappuccino moments ago. A cappuccino. Is that what you're are you on the espresso train these days? Oh yes. Oh yes. Tell me more. This was a gift to myself post drip acquisition. <laughs> Appropriate. <laughs> yep. A fancy schmancy espresso machine. So I had a what was the brand? I think it was a Gaja home espresso maker single boiler setup. Is that that like one of those little pots that sits on the stove kind of thing or like the little juggy things? So it no, it was a freestanding unit. So it wasn't like a stovetop espresso maker, but a little freestanding one probably cost, I don't know, several hundred dollars. So it wasn't like extremely expensive. And the quality after a while, like you kind of figure out that like you can you can hit a theoretical max on quality because temperature control is important for producing like consistent espresso i sort of hit hit a ceiling on what i could do with that machine and couldn't really replicate my favorite third wave coffee shop level of quality (laughs) so so then i um gifted myself a much nicer kind of prosumer double boiler um, espresso machine and that's i've had that for gosh four years now i think i still uh make drinks on it every day and love it so yeah. you don't do like drip coffee or anything like that, like like normal coffee. It's all espresso. Um, so it's always espresso in the morning, and then a lot of times in the afternoon, I'll just do like a pour over. So I have a I have a Kalita setup, which is a pretty I don't know I don't know all the pour over methods that well, but I guess it's it's supposed to be a bit more forgiving than like a V sixty in terms of just like the amount of precision you need to put into um, into brewing. So it takes you know five minutes. Use a gooseneck kettle and my little Kalita set up and usually make myself a pour over. It sounds like you're also steaming milk in the morning. I am. Yep. Yep. I don't eat breakfast anymore. <laughs> like I've just kind of stopped in the last, I don't know, four to six months, I think. And I find that like, I think my body doesn't fully wake up, like my stomach doesn't fully wake up from having the cappuccino, just a little bit of calories from the milk. But I think it sustains me enough where I don't, I don't like stomach doesn't growl mid morning anymore. So I don't know. I think that might be, I just, I just kind of subsist on my cappuccino through the morning and then, uh, then have lunch. Hmm. Are there other big purchases you made after the drip acquisition (laughs) that were like treats to yourself? Hmm. Not too many, to be honest. I'm trying to think that was definitely the biggest one. And then. I mean, I have lived in a pretty expensive spot. So like I was spending a lot of money on rent too, (laughs) which, you know, was trying to like, the acquisition was, was like an excuse to have a new experience in a new place. And so, you know, decided to live in like one of the most, um, kind of cool areas of town just to like squeeze the most out of the experience. So I would say between, uh, yeah, like living in a relatively expensive spot and uh, and the espresso machine are probably the top two. <laughs> Does that make me a hipster? <laughs> uh, I, I don't know. 
I guess it depends on how much how much you got and how much yeah what percentage it was. I don't know. So do you have a favorite kind of beans that you're making? Like, should I get into the espresso thing? I like I, I like making really really strong dark coffee. I mean, do you like Americanos? Like when you I do. Yeah, I drink. Amer- yeah. I often drink decaf Americanos in the afternoon. It's definitely an investment. So it's like you know, it's it's a slippery slope like anything where you will continue to want to chase higher quality once you get into that game, I feel like. So I don't know. It depends on if you want to invest in that. But like if you really want to just produce really high quality drip coffee, I mean, there are much cheaper ways to do that than getting into the into the espresso game, I would say. Sure. I'm, I'm like pretty happy with my coffee game currently. Like I make like really strong AeroPress coffee each morning. And I just use like way more beans than most people would consider reasonable. Um, and yeah, I'm pretty happy with it. There's also like this this other brewing method that I kind of I kind of want to try. My friend of mine has it. It's like a vacuum method sort of thing. So like it looks like this kind of chemistry <laughs> implement, but you put the grounds in there and you pour the pour hot water in and then it when it reaches a certain temperature it starts to like siphon up into this other chamber and it leaves behind the uh leaves behind the grounds and no filter is required. Which is kind of cool. That could be one way to up your game. Like if you're, if you're using filters or something like you, that technically imparts a little bit of uh, paper yeah. flavor. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I don't know if I buy that. <laughs> I think with the intensity of the coffee I'm making, if you can taste that little bit of filter taste, I'd be shocked. It's very motorola. It's viscous. It it leaves a trail on the the, the mug. I always tell people like like no, I make like crazy coffee, and they're like no, no, and like they they try it, and they're always shocked, even despite the warnings. So mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I've gotten used to it; it seems normal <laughs> to me. But nice. Well, um, another thing that I've been doing in the coffee arena is roasting my own beans, which I think I've talked about here. And yeah, so Sweet Maria's is my vendor of choice. They source green coffee beans, which is basically just unroasted. That's the term for it. They ha- always have like a rotating supply. So I usually order about, I don't know, $100 worth of beans at a time. And that lasts me maybe five to six months. Um, yeah. So are beans, you can store them that long and they don't lose their. Oh, yeah. Yep. Something. So they, they have a much shorter life once they've been roasted than you know, sort of an optimal time before they before they sort of expire. But yeah, in their green form, they're just like little hard kernels and I, they last they last a while. So, and you're roasting uh, like small batches as you need them. Yep. So I have this little setup, and it's basically a popcorn popper, <laughs> a whirly pop thing that so you can uh, turn the little crank and it and it continues to stir the beans on the stovetop. And uh, I roast about ten ounces at a time, eight to ten ounces at a time. Um, so usually I average about once a week. Are espresso beans different than normal coffee beans, or is it how you roast them or something? My understanding is that they're not they're not really that different that there are some beans that are just naturally more predisposed to being optimal for espresso. Like they, they produce more crema and I don't know if that's, mm, I should actually know the answer to this. Like if they do something different in the, in the treatment process of preparing the, the green beans, but I know that there will be, you know, as I'm shopping around for those, there'll be some that are like due to the flavor profile and the, properties of this bean it's good for espresso but um, i've used any and all beans for my espresso machine and sometimes there's just less crema which is not that big of a deal do you when this in your afternoon coffee is that caffeinated too oh yes Mm -hmm. okay 
So you do, do, do like basically two a day? Is that you? Two to three a day. Yeah. Um, sometimes I'll do like, depending on how early I'm up, I'll do one right, right when I wake up. And then a lot of times like a mid morning and then a early afternoon and usually cut myself off by around three, three, the latest. Mm-hmm. Yeah, three, yeah. three sounds a little late. Mm-hmm. You mentioned being in a cool part of Minneapolis. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm coming to Minneapolis pretty soon. Yeah. Microconf. Yeah. Microconf coming up just a handful of weeks actually. Yeah. I'm excited. I think my schedule is like pretty, I think we're pretty full, honestly, given the conference. Like I'm just kind of coming right before it and leaving right after it. But are there any like Minneapolis things to see or do if I had like a couple hours somewhere? Mm. Yeah, for sure. I mean, so there's, I have food opinions about my favorite spots to get like, I think the best burger in the city. So, you know, might, I could share some of those wrecks with you for sure. We have a couple of landmarks, not, we're not like, you know, <laughs> it's not that impressive, but we have like a, we have a sculpture garden here. We have next to the um, um, modern art museum, we have our famous stone arch bridge that crosses the Mississippi river, which is right. Um, I live actually like half a mile from there. <laughs> so that's kind of a nice, nice walk. We have like so many nice trails and stuff throughout the city. That's one of the. One of the mo- more appealing parts of Minneapolis is trails, just like, like high walking trails. Yeah, just like and biking trails, mixed use trails. There's a trail all along the the river that you can walk down for miles uh, or bike on or whatever. There's like a waterfall, <laughs> Minnehaha Falls, that it's like a creek that runs into the river that is currently frozen. So some people will like sneak behind the falls, and I think it's illegal, but lots of people do it, <laughs> and it's like a it's like a frozen cave. So not sure what the state of those things will be. We're in the, now, now we're in like a bumper season right now where everything's sort of melting and it's ugly outside. Um, Perfect time to have us over. <laughs> yeah, it should. I mean, hopefully things will be in better shape by the time microconf comes. There is a chance that we'll have like a big old snowstorm that'll dump a bunch of snow and then it'll be slushy. You better but not. That's Minnesota. So, yeah. you know, yeah. don't know well, what you're going to get. It's like that sometimes too. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, I assume you're attending the conference in some form. Yes, I'll be there. Mm-hmm. What are your What are your goals for that? What do you plan on doing? Hmm. I think it's just like reconnecting with people that I haven't seen in years. I think I'm more like you know looking forward to the social aspect of it and seeing people. I'm sure the talks will be good too. But like at this stage, I just want to you know just want to reconnect with with people from the community that I've been you know chatting with on Twitter here and there, but haven't seen because of pandemic for a long time. All the way track. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that sounds good. That's that's my plan too. Mm-hmm. Although actually, this year all of Tuple's coming. Oh, nice. Yeah, Very cool. Yep, it's it's exciting. It's the first time the all three or not, all of Tuple. I mean, all the, the the founders. Like when we had just created the company, like we like weeks before, we went to Spencer and I went to MicroConf together. I remember that. I think I met. I think I met Spencer there, and we recorded in that hotel room, and Spencer yes. was sitting there. Yep. Yep. And then the next year was just me. And then after that was COVID. So it has yet to be all the founders and we're going. I think it's going to be fun. Yeah. Do you have any particular hopes aside from the, you know, social hallway track stuff? Nah, same as you. Yeah. I've been thinking about hosting like a small little get together thing, just like a hotel room kind of thing. Like let's, let's hang out and maybe have a bottle of whiskey or something. And just, I, I want to make sure I have time to see people that I care about. I think it requires a little bit of upfront planning because 
everybody gets there is like people will have dinner plans or not have dinner plans. And it's like if you don't do a little bit of like figuring out who you want to hang out with and, and prioritizing time, it's easy to miss people. That gets a little overwhelming for me, honestly, trying to figure out what who do I want to see and where do I insert myself into their schedule and like, you know, everyone's doing all this planning. So, yeah, uh, tricky, but so, I want to I think about that a bit still. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, I was thinking a topic we could talk about is retreats, trips, I guess. I was thinking back and a thing that I've been doing for a number of years now that has like been so useful for my life and so enjoyable has been like planning trips with people. So there are a few examples like um, that I want to talk about like Codecation, NanoConf, like ski houses, family stuff like Martha's Vineyard, that kind of thing. And I think I kind of just wanted to make a pitch to people. I've gotten kind of crazy rewards, like life rewards, like feeling good about life and building much more substantial relationships with people by doing honestly not too much extra work. The first thing on that list is, is Codecation, which was this thing that I did with my friend Chris Hunt several times. We had become friends via speaking at the same conferences. And one time uh, we kind of were chatting on Twitter about like being interested in some of the same programming topics. And I was like, what if we just like rented a place and you know, like dove into this book and like read a bunch of it together? And he was like, yeah, it sounds great. And ended up like booking a house, booking a place in Costa Rica, actually, writing a bunch of uh, closure together and exploring like lisps, and it was uh, it was an awesome chance to kind of stretch my programming legs in a way that I hadn't gotten before. And then like NanoConf was like a, a little conference that I put together several times, just inviting like other software founder friends of mine that I wanted to get to know better and who I liked. Like both those things were honestly like not that much logistically. It's kind of like, well, we need a place and like we need a location. We need a lodging and a rough plan, a rough schedule. But like both those things have been like so interesting and like life quality enhancing that I wanted to kind of just make a pitch of people to consider consider doing things like this. Mm-hmm. I've known about these types of things for a while and like my you know, friends that, that host things like that you've done yours which i didn't wasn't able to make it to when you did it a couple years years back and then yeah there's a couple others in my in my sphere that i've yet to attend yet and i don't quite know why that it is i think i've had trouble like slotting that in with all the other busyness of life i guess but i think that's potentially a blind spot or i'm missing out on something by not by not trying one so yeah it's something that i think i want to do soon you should I think it's kind of a nice hack to like deepen a relationship with someone significantly. So like NanoConf is kind of a good example where the people I invited, we spent, I think we did, I think it was like we arrived on like the evening of like a Monday and then we hung out Tuesday, Wednesday and people went home Thursday morning. And like spending two full days plus some edge stuff is like way more hours than you could accumulate through like many years of casual bumping into each other. And so it was a chance to build these relationships, like basically like 10x the amount of time I had spent with people that I was interested in. And again, like just not that hard, like just took a little bit of like thinking and planning and creativity. And yeah, it's a little stressful to be the host because you're sort of responsible for the quality of the event. I'm pretty allergic to logistics. It's not my forte. But 
like it, it was fine. It was not so much that I was like too, super overwhelmed and it, and it went well and people were happy with it. And so I think it's a thing that is doable by most people in terms of difficulty and challenge. And it's maybe just something that if you haven't considered hosting some sort of gathering, you should think about it. Mm. What what have you found? Do you, any like tips on kind of the ideal structure? Do you have like some structured time or is it all pretty unstructured? I think so. a little bit of structure is good. So with NanoConf, we pretty much always did talks. The structure would be like everyone's going to get about 10 to 15 minutes in front of the group. And you can use that time however you like. So you could prepare something if you want. Like you could prepare a talk with slides if, that, if that's what you, what you want. You could just sort of be in the hot seat and be like, hey, oh, there's this topic I would like the group's opinion on. You could tell a story. Like it's, I left it intentionally kind of vague. And I think that works pretty well. It's nice to have something to know what, like, to know so, sort of like some things you're going to do. Like, we would kind of be like, we were wandering the island sort of, and like, we would go like find a cool spot and then be like, all right, let's do somebody's talk. Like, if someone doesn't need like a screen. And so, like, we would, all right, cool, I'll go now. Um, and it's a, a nice way to like also sort of force some interaction. Whereas, like, okay, everyone's going to get a chance to like talk a lot about what they're doing, what their business is, what they're struggling with. Uh, and that, that was useful. I guess another question that popped in my brain, like, so how many people know each other in advance when you've assembled these and how many people are just complete strangers with one another? I try to do a mix. So usually everybody knows somebody. So everybody knows me, of course, or like someone knows me. I would hope so. <laughs> and then people will often have a relationship with like one or two other people. And I think I did it's like eight to 10, somewhere in there, that range, number of people. So I would say that the the, the majority of the people at the thing were, didn't know each other. That there were no connections between most nodes. That seems good. Like that, that to me is part of the part of the joy of it is like connecting people. Where I'm like, you're gonna love. I'm I'm vouching for the quality of all these people, and like I'm just excited for everyone to get to know each other. Because then I know both of you, and you're both awesome. You should know each other. I find that really fulfilling. So there has to be a little bit of thought put into like I think this group would gel well together. Like I think this person and this person would be compatible versus like not giving any thought to that. I could imagine it could be a stilted, awkward weekend. <laughs> yeah, I don't I don't usually think like I don't run through every attendee and make sure like they would like all the people. It's a little bit more like I'm thinking of a certain vibe that would like work where it's like people that are willing to be a bit open and vulnerable and meet people. Sometimes I will invite people that I know are a little bit on the quieter side or like the more introverted shy side, but like not too many of those people. Thinking about the group dynamics, I think is, is yeah, is important is worth doing. But but also like so many things in life, I think like you'll learn a ton by doing one of them. And so I wouldn't get too hung up on like doing it really well. Try to do it well, but like don't get blocked by like not knowing the answers to various questions logistically. I think it's particularly good if you have kind of like a slightly warm connection with somebody that you want to really turn into like a real friendship. Like someone that you've met at a couple conferences or you've talked to on Twitter a few times or you did a call sometime with or some sort of like these like looser, lighter connections. I think that's kind of like that's one of the the right kind of people to come because if you think if you reach out to a total stranger, they would be less likely to come for sure. And also like you don't you don't really know if you want them to come. <laughs> like you might meet them and be like, oh, this person's vibe is actually not that great. Even having just like a call with somebody as opposed to having passive like text based communication does so much for strengthening that connection. I'm thinking about. 
just like customers that I've talked to where we like had one session and maybe it was, maybe it was about something I wanted to ask them. Maybe they wanted to ask me some questions and like times where I have like deliberately allowed that to happen, even though it's like, you know, it takes time to, to do that. Like I found those unsurprisingly end up being like a more lasting connection where like, you know, even from like prior iterations, like people that I met during the drip days are now like some of some of the, a lot of those people are like now the people who are fans of what I'm doing now and have kept up and have been, you know, in my corner. So this, this is even beyond that, but it's just making me think about that, you know, as the organizer, like there's a bunch of benefits that I feel like flow to you as the person organizing it. Like, first of all, you get to like, you're picking the guest list, which is like a wonderful, a wonderful perk in my, my book. Cause I'm, I'm very particular about people, but then like, it's like, yeah, you're, you're the hub through which all things flow. And so I think it's good to be in that position. Like, I think you probably end up with the most benefits, like even though you have to do the work, like it, it just works out really nicely for you. So that's like the, the professional version of that. But I've, I've, start, I've been doing them these like more like personally as well. So like renting a place on the vineyard for like most of September, the last several years. I've been renting uh, lake houses with family and friends. And basically like this is a similar thing where it's like it's not too much logistically it's mostly like figuring out the place getting the place locked down and then figuring out some people you want to invite and it's just been another opportunity for me to spend a lot of contiguous time with people that i care about a lot and like really deepen those relationships yeah yeah done a couple trips in the last few years with friends and i've noticed that like it's really really fun you know like you grow up traveling with your family and then for me, like when I got married, it's like a lot of me, uh, like trips with my spouse, you know, which is really fun. But then lately, like we've done some more trips with, with a friend or two. Yeah. It just really like strengthens that relationship. It's, and it's really fun. So yeah, big fan of that. Mm-hmm. And then recently I did a fa- like a pure family version of this where we rented a house for Thanksgiving and invited family to it. And this was like partly in response to the, like the stress of Thanksgiving like my my mom and aunts have always said like they they find that holiday really stressful because they feel responsible for the the happiness of everyone and like making this big meal and like it's a really it's like a big pressure on this like one culinary event <laughs> uh, yep. and so we tried this thing um as a mitigation strategy of like what if what if it were no one's house yeah neutral territory <laughs> exactly <laughs> right and it worked great like it was like basically everyone said like it was the most relaxing thanksgiving they'd had ever and it was people were huge fans and so like we're like we'll definitely do that again and it was it was also like those that that deepening relationship thing like i i got to spend a whole bunch of days in a row with my niece who's like brand a brand new baby basically and like she had she's at the age where like for the first day she's just like you're not my mom you're not my dad i don't want to talk to you like you are scary but like by the second day she was like letting everybody hold her and like was feeling more comfortable and so it was like a chance for like everyone to like kind of have have time with her and like and make that connection stronger yeah yeah, I really like that a lot. Actually, we were supposed to do something similar for a for a Thanksgiving thing, and then I think it was foiled by COVID. But like, definitely want to want to do that on the next like large family gathering. Try it on neutral territory. I think that's uh, that's a major hack. Yeah, so that's my pitch to everyone: is, is think of like maybe one of those sounds interesting to you, uh, and I would I would encourage you to give it a shot. Yeah, it's good stuff. Yeah. How do you level up your design skills, Derek? Oh gosh, that's a really hard question. <laughs> be a big fan of Adam and Steve. Be obsessive about. No, I don't know. It's a hard. It, no, it is a hard question to answer. Uh, why? Because why is it hard? Yeah, 
I guess it's hard for me to answer because I didn't follow a, like a systematic playbook on leveling up my own design skills. So I don't feel like I'm in the, in an expert position to advise on that necessarily for myself. I've always been like interested in it. So I think just having a general interest in design and then I'm pretty obsessive about the details. So I've sort of been a student of, of like interface design just because I was interested in it, you know? So it's like just something that I naturally pay a lot of attention to. And, um, I think I dry, I derive a lot of inspiration from, from just using other software products and, and seeing, you know, recognizing experiences that I like and things that feel smooth and then like replicating them in my own way, but kind of like doing a lot of ruthless copying of patterns that I like to see in the wild. And that's sort of my strategy. But yeah, I don't, I don't have like a, like read this book or take this course or, uh, you know, I don't know. This is a question from one of our Twitter followers. I feel like when someone's asking a question like this, my hunch is like they're not doing enough of it. Like they're not trying to do the thing. I wouldn't mind like being better at that sort of stuff, but like I know why I'm not. And like, I feel like the missing piece is like, are you constantly making interfaces and then like trying to make them better and like trying to figure out why they're not good and then paying a lot of attention to other people's choices and see like, and like you said, stealing them, trying them out, like trying to replicate them. Like just, can you just make your own copy of this thing that you've seen before? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I have a long history of doing this. Like back, <laughs> back when I was a little kid, my dad, my dad's an engineer. So he had always had like CAD software and I was like, enjoyed playing with CAD software as almost like design software. So I would, I would build like wireframes of things at one point, like I became obsessed with like the design of like currency and checks and things. And like, I almost to the pixel replicated a check and printed them out. And my parents were like slightly afraid when they saw me do that. Cause they're like, they're like, Oh damn, that looks too real. <laughs> but, but then I famously, <laughs> this, this is family lore. Like I printed a, a check and gave it to my great grandmother and gave her a million dollar check. And I think that was very, um, very touching to her. <laughs> that was touching your ear fraud <laughs> yes she didn't attempt to cash it so don't no one went to prison okay uh, but so uh, like there is actually nothing magical about checks like it's it's the numbers on them mostly and the bottom that makes them a check it's a, like if you just like replicate a check that's a check mm-hmm. it, that is a thing mm-hmm. yeah so, i know right be careful everyone yeah. yes even as a kid i was very interested in like design and like like studying how things are laid out and trying to play with it in my own medium and so i think it's just something that i've been really interested in for a long time and that's why you know it's like one area that i haven't shied away from even though i kind of don't i don't necessarily feel like i'm the best designer out there like i look at i look at other interface designers and i'm I'm always like impressed and feel like i'm deficient in (laughs) in a lot of areas but I think I finally like embrace the fact that like, no, I think I can call myself a designer because when I talk to designers, they're like, no, oh, that's really all I'm doing. It's like an agonizing process of pushing pixels around and playing with things until it feels just right. So I'm like, okay, I guess, I guess we're all kind of the same then. That might be a good uh, point that maybe people are missing is like how much experimentation there is. Like the, like the final design is not a thing that you sort of are marching evenly and steadily towards. There's a lot of like exploration and and fooling around and trying stuff and then reverting it and undoing it. Yeah. And it can be a really agonizing process, but it was funny. I was having a conversation Mm -hmm. with that's important too. I think actually. Yeah. 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 It's like expecting the agony. (laughs) 
Mm-hmm. Like if you're working mm-hmm. on it and it doesn't feel good and you hate it, like that, that sounds normal. Mm-hmm. I was chatting with a friend who is, he's a comedian and he's, he's written books like in a, you know, in a prior iteration of his career. And we were just kind of talking about how like the process of writing a book was, he, he was describing that similar agony. And then he was also sharing this anecdote from another author where, where, who like was interviewed and said like, so do you enjoy writing? And he's like, enjoy writing? What do you mean? No, it's, it's painful. It's terrible. But you I mean, you get to a result that you feel happy about in the end, but the process of getting there, there is a lot of agony. And I was like, oh yeah, that, that resonates a lot with my experience with the design. I mean, some, some encoding too, but like, I feel like I can get to quicker wins with, with software development, but with design, it's like, I have a hard time shortcutting that. It either feels terrible or I'm like, ah, oh, finally I've made it to like a stage where I feel at least a little bit good about this. Um, yeah. Nice. Somebody asked us for single founder SaaS ideas. Hmm. I have some thoughts on this that are kind of a little bit more meta, but do you, does anything pop into your head when you hear that question? I, I'm curious to hear your, your meta thoughts. Okay. So two, two big things. One is if you're a single founder, I would think extra hard about distribution or go to market or marketing or whatever you want to call it. But like, how will people find this thing? How will a steady stream of people find this thing? If you're a programmer asking for a single founder SaaS idea, you're probably not a great marketer. And so I would probably be thinking about things that have built-in distribution, kind of like Shopify App Store or Apple App Store kind of has its own distribution. Things where like you're, you can kind of ride somebody else's wave and there's already a collection of customers who are looking for things and, and buying them. So I think that, I think that becomes extra important as a factor in the idea you choose if you pick something where yeah that's because you you won't have a lot of time to focus on marketing and helping people hear about your thing because you need to be in the code and you need to be the support person and all this stuff so um, making that easier would be good the other thing is this is a thing i've been talking with wathen about a good bit he keeps saying this and I, i agree which is you should probably try pretty hard to not make something that people are not already paying for I think a pretty good strategy is like a better version of something that people already pay for that kind of sucks. I think that's a pretty good thing to look for. So I would like kind of look around your life or actually more, 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 more to the point, your business's life. Like don't, don't sell to consumers, hopefully try to make a business thing and just look around and be like, what do, what do we pay for? But like we complain about. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think that's, I mean, that's been a, a big part of my thought process in this, you know, in this last season of trying to, of like ultimately settling on Savvy Cal. I mean, that kind of came from exploring and I would regularly do this, like make lists of tools that we used and, and more generally like problems that we needed to solve as a, as a company, you know, knowing that I was probably wanting to sell to people like myself because you know, for example, if I tried to sell to realtors, I don't really know anything about the realtor space. <laughs> you know, I would be probably it would be wise to team up with someone who has deep domain knowledge in that space if I was going to try to like build software for those people. So if you're truly solo, you know, you're probably going to have better luck building for a space that you deeply understand. Yes, that, like unfortunately, that means there is like there are a lot of software developers wanting to build for other like software people. So that's a pretty um crowded space in that sense but still not impossible there's still so much crappy software out there that you can you know leverage your skills and and 
build a better version of. <laughs> so there's plenty of fruit there. I'm also pro Rob's stair step approach mm-hmm. philosophy, yeah. which is like SATS is, is great, but also pretty hard, um, particularly as one person. But like making a paid course as one person, not nearly as hard. The shortest path to making like 10 grand from something is probably like a paid course on some topic that you are, are expert in. So if you haven't already kind of gotten, if you haven't made like a like thousands of dollars on the internet from strangers, like you've never learned, like you have none of those skills, I would probably start more on something like that. Paid newsletter, paid course, video course, something like that. Mm-hmm. Yep. Because, you know, SaaS takes time and if you need, but you need money to live and sustain yourself, but you also need to like, you need to free up your time to be able to work on those things and you need to build up certain skills that don't just come overnight. Taking the stair step approach to like gradually leveling up your skills and buying more of your time is a super um, smart way to go. Yeah, it's, it's the leveling up the skills to, to me is the interesting part of that in particular where even if you're not optimizing for money it's like do you do you know how to do these things like until you've gotten some dollars from people who don't know you on the internet there's a bunch of things to learn to to cross that threshold there's something about the sort of inorganic help me figure out a business idea question this is an overstatement of how i feel but there's something that i feel sort which is kind of like if you have to ask, you shouldn't do that idea. Like there should be this thing, which is like you, you see a problem in the world and you're like, I can do a better version of this or I can solve this problem and it will be worth money. And I feel compelled and interested and excited about this idea. So I don't know. if you're committed enough to wanting to take this path, like I think there is a way to, to be systematic about vetting ideas and like even if you don't have one that's smacking you in the face right now. I think that's possible. I mean, I, I certainly did that. Like I didn't, I took a systematic approach to, to finding the Savvy Cal, you know, idea. And it's built up lists of criteria and, um, I have a blog post on that, that I can link to that might be helpful, you know, but everyone needs to think about what, what are you optimizing for and what would set you up for the greatest success given how you want to structure your company. And then you can sort of start to, to zero in on like, a set of criteria and start matching up like potential opportunities against. So I think you can be systematic about it, but, but yeah, like if you have no inclinations other than like, I see other people doing this and I just want to like start a single founder SaaS. Like there's a lot more to figure out than just like saying like, I want to get into this, help me get into this. You know what I mean? Um, Mm -hmm. So how did your giveaway go? Um, I think it was fine you know it's just another like marketing activity um wasn't like a wasn't like a knockout like oh my gosh we're on a new trajectory now kind of kind of thing but like saw a nice bump in trials which i need to check in we did a we did a final email out to the list just several thousand people with like a special coupon code to maybe give them an extra incentive to uh to sign up and try out the product and i haven't actually checked in to see how much uptake we've had on that but um but yeah, in general, like just building awareness and so expected to see moderate, like immediate term gains, but hopefully like longer term payoff that's admittedly difficult to measure. But like, you know, just just another thing to kind of get Savvy Cal in front of uh, in front of people's eyes and on their radar. So difficult to measure. But I think uh, as far as like cost, how much time we put into it and how much the giveaway items cost, like 
I think, a, a worth it uh, marketing project. One last thing I want to throw out is just two subreddits that I've been finding interesting recently. One is Fatfire, which is... So FIRE is financial independence retire early as, a, as an idea. Um, I would describe the FIRE movement as kind of like, how do you cut your expenses dramatically so that you can quickly retire on not as much money? Uh, fat fire is how do you do that but with more money <laughs> okay um so it's kind of like the, it's like the the richer version of that i guess like, like, <laughs> okay if you're not interested in figuring out how to live on like 30 grand a year instead mm-hmm. um like what's what's a version of this that's that's bigger basically yeah um i've been finding that interesting although it does make me feel poor so <laughs> <laughs> be careful <laughs> be like i have 12 million in net worth and i'm doing this like okay wow all right yeah yep. <laughs> so if you want to feel poor or maybe you have that much money then maybe that's an interesting subreddit for you um, the other one more accessible to <laughs> all of us is uh, One Bag, O-N-E-B-A-G. Uh, and it is the art of minimalist travel. So it's, you know, people that are kind of obsessed with like, what's the perfect, like, lightweight, small backpack? And then like, exactly what do you put in it so that you can travel with like very lightweight and, and very few items? Which the optimizer nerd in me is, is kind of all about. Someone would be like, oh, I tra- I'd like travel for two months with this 19 liter backpack, which is quite small. And it's, it's fun. I, I'm enjoying that one. Yeah, nice. I, uh, I feel like that's something I can get better at. Like every time I travel and, and like the less I take, the happier I am just in the whole process of moving around just uh, makes it so much more pleasant. So I would like to get better at that. Totally. Yeah. If you're, if yeah. you're on like a multi-city kind of trip, I think mm-hmm. optimizing for weight is like becomes really, really worth it. Yeah. Yeah. And also, yeah, have everything on your back. If you have to roll a suitcase around, nope. 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 Mm-hmm. Nope. You have failed. <laughs> you have failed. It's just so much worse. Having I mean, I've done both. Like when you're like moving through cities and trains and taxis and planes and like you have a roller bag versus like everything is on your back with your arms free, it's just so much nicer. Yeah. Yeah. Like, yeah, you gotta carry the weight, but you know, that just makes you uh, want to optimize it more. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. yeah. So that's it. Those are my recs. Cool. I like it. Cool. All right. Let's wrap it. Let's wrap it. Notes for the show can be found at artofproductpodcast.com. Thanks for listening. See ya. Bye-bye.